Hello everyone, my name is Ryan Driscoll, and this is Stoic Warfighters, a podcast about the intersection of ancient philosophy and the modern military. Today I had the pleasure of speaking to Chris Fisher. Chris is a former Marine who spent his initial post-military years in Silicon Valley, working several different tech-related jobs, ranging from software engineer and hardware engineer to sales executive and regional manager for a large software company. In 2004, Chris moved to Florida and returned to public service as a law enforcement officer. He has been a detective for the past 10 years and in preparation for his retirement from law enforcement has created a real estate photography business based on his passion for photography. Chris is also the scholar of the College of Stoic Philosophers. He started his involvement with the college in 2011 as a student and after graduation proceeded to serve as a mentor and tutor. Eventually, he served as the dean of students and sat on the board of the new Stoa. He is also the author of Traditional Stoicism blog and the Stoicism on Fire podcast. He has also published for Stoicism Today and contributed a chapter to the book Pandeism, an anthology of the creative mind. Chris is well known within the modern Stoic community as one of the most prolific speakers on the topic and has contributed greatly to many people's understanding of the philosophy, myself included. I truly appreciate him taking the time to speak to me, and I hope you enjoy. Hey, Chris, how's it going? Great, Ryan. How are you today? I'm good. Thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. Well, prior to this, I will have read your bio, so kind of given a broad overview of the, you know, all, everything you've done in your life up until this point. But I was hoping, in the nature of the way these conversations normally go, if you could kind of walk me through your transition, getting to where you are now, because you have an interesting story insofar as you started in public service in the military, you went into the private sector, and then later in life went back into public service. So I'd be interested to hear what your thinking was along that path. Well, I still question my thinking sometimes on that path, but um, <laughs> yeah, I went, in, I went into the Marine Corps basically right out of high school and spent uh, six and a half years in the Marine Corps, most of that with uh, what is uh, called the Presidential Helicopter Squadron in Quantico, Virginia. So um, this is going back quite a few years. I went in in 1978, and so I was I was at the Presidential Helicopter Squadron at the very tail end of the Carter administration, and uh, most of it was the the Reagan administration. So it's a little bit of history. I got out of the Marine Corps, and because I had a background in technology, my my specialty in the Marine Corps was a avionics technician. I was able to get a, a job in high-tech <clears throat> initially um, with a copier repair company, which, well, I was waiting to get hired in a, by a computer company, but eventually a computer company hired me and then uh, moved me from Virginia out to Silicon Valley, where I spent the next uh, 15 or more years out there in, in Silicon Valley as a hardware engineer, then a software engineer, then uh, moved on into uh, sales and sales management before... Again, this is the the thinking part. I, you know, for whatever reason, uh, you know, decided there needed to be a change in my life, and went to my wife one day, and uh, I gave up my gave up the high paying career and said, I'm thinking about becoming a cop. <clears throat> and after she got over the threats to divorce me because she didn't marry a cop, she she was actually very supportive. We moved out here to Florida, <clears throat> which was part of her agreement. If you're going to be a cop, then I'm going to live where I want to live, and I want to live in Florida. And at that point, I. I wasn't holding the, the ace to, to, you know, to bluff. So anyway, uh, we, we ended up here in Florida and, uh, I went into law enforcement here with a large agency in the Tampa area. <clears throat> and, um, 
Ultimately, that's what led me to Stoicism. You know, while my bio says that I was introduced to Stoicism in the Marine Corps, which is true, but, you know, the Marine Corps, at least back then, I'm sure it still does, introduces you to that small S version of Stoicism, you know, the suck it up buttercup kind of, you know, um, which is not real Stoicism. It's just the Stoicism that people conceive of, you know, be be a Stoic, be tough, but suck it up. <clears throat> but going into law enforcement, I ended up in a... Uh, a tough part of town here in the Tampa area. You know, I ended up in the, in the, the, the high crime area and what I witnessed, uh, caused me a lot of, you know, psychological angst. It was like how, you know, human beings doing this to one another. And, and now I'm in the position where I have to engage with this and, and, um, started looking for answers. You know, I'd read Nietzsche and I was aware of his, you know, warning, that when you fight monsters, you have to be careful not to become one yourself. And and when you look into the abyss, the abyss is also staring back. And I could I could sense, and my wife was telling me, hey, this is this is changing you. you know, being a cop is is changing who you are. So I started looking for answers. I um, read. I was an avid reader. I was reading widely at the time in cognitive psychology and biology and evolution. I was trying to understand what I was seeing on the street. I came across a book by a guy named Jonathan Haidt, uh, The Happiness Hypothesis. It just happened to mention Stoicism, doesn't talk a lot about it, but I thought, okay, well, that's rather curious. So I started diving a little deeper. Uh, I found uh, the College of Stoic Philosophers. I took their basic course, and I was hooked. I I went on to the advanced course, uh, then went on to teach there and mentor there and be on the board, and and, uh, now I'm the head of the the school portion of that organization. Well, that's a pretty storied career. I mean, there were a few things that you brought up that I thought were interesting. One, whenever I left the military, I went into construction, which all things considered, you know, transitioning away from a tactical field into a completely civilian field that has nothing to do with tactics or fighting, anything like that. Construction is pretty easy flow in terms of it being somewhat of a, a man's man's environment still. So if you come from combat arms or the Marine Corps or the infantry, something like that, mm-hmm. it's a little bit of an easier transition, but you went into tech mm-hmm. and sales. Yeah. I imagine there was a, a bit of culture shock there. Was that difficult going from the Marine Corps into that or did, was it pretty easy for you? No, I went into a, I went into a, uh, a you know, white shirt and tie business world, the I, what was then the IBM business world. So there, the culture wasn't so much different. Uh, in fact, you know, when I went to see somebody who was helping me make the transition, he said, oh yeah, you'd be a perfect fit for the IBM world because yeah, you're, you were a Marine. Uh, the, the structure won't, uh, won't bother you. You know, it took me a long time to get over the yes, sir, no, sir. You know, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. That, that took a while, but the transition, it wasn't, I wouldn't say it was difficult. Now I, I had, the good fortune of not, I wasn't in during a time of war. There was no combat going on. And I, and, you know, I was an air winger. I wasn't a combatant anyway, but, you know, the, the only uh, issues we had when I was in the Marine Corps, we had a little, you know, uh, battle down there in Grenada, which probably no one would know about if it wasn't for Clint Eastwood's movie, The Heartbreak Ridge, and uh, the, the bombing of the Marine barracks over in, Le- in Lebanon. So <clears throat> I didn't have to make that hard transition that most soldiers are making today from, or I shouldn't say most, but a lot of soldiers are making from coming from combat into a civilian world. 
So I would say it wasn't as difficult for me as it would be for someone making that transition. Okay. And then your joke about, you know, almost getting divorced, I can only imagine. I know whenever I got out and I took a steady job, there were several times I talked to my wife about wanting to move into law enforcement, move into, I don't know, contracting different things. And there were definitely tense conversations about her willingness to let me die for my country versus, you know, something that she didn't see either as rewarding or as noble, you know, contracting not being as noble as the military service. And then at the time that I was considering law enforcement, it was right on the cusp of this current wave of pretty, I don't know how to put it, but harsh judgment of law enforcement, a Mm -hmm. general unpopular opinion. Yeah. And she, it was actually a little bit before that. And she had the foresight to say, I don't know if now's the right time. And, you know, whether or not it was the right decision not to do it or not. Yeah. Who knows, but ended up not making that decision. So I am where I am, but I definitely sympathize with that. You know, I, I can't imagine that that career change was that easy for your wife. No, it was very, well, it was tough for the whole family because I was, I, I was doing very well financially. I was living in Silicon Valley. I was a, I was a, a top end executive, a hired gun out there and going from that to a cop's pay. Um, it took a lot of uh, adjusting our whole lifestyle changed and, um, but, but yeah, she was, don't get me wrong, she was extremely supportive. In fact, when we moved out here, I was doubting whether I really wanted to go into law enforcement, uh, primarily because of the hardship it was going to place on the family. And I, I, uh, one day we were actually here in Florida. I was sitting at a traffic light behind, I work for Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office, and we were sitting behind a marked unit at a stoplight. And I was just staring at the marked unit, and my wife, unbeknownst to me, was looking at me. And at some point she said, you're going to have to do it, aren't you? And I looked over and I realized she'd been watching me this entire time. And I just kind of shrugged my shoulders. And, and, and you know, but at that point she realized, yeah, this was something that I just, for whatever reason, had to do. And I can't, that's the part I can't explain because I'll, you know, I'll be honest, in 19, probably about 1999, I literally remember lying in bed with my wife watching cops. I don't watch the show anymore, but I used to watch it religiously. And I literally turned to her at one point and I said, who in their right mind would want to do that job? And, you know, it was six years later, I was wearing a uniform doing the job. So, you know, call it what you want, call it fate. Uh, I, I wanted to go back into public service and that was a place where I felt like I could make a contribution and I did it. I'm thankful I did. It, it was its own set of uh, hardships. And yeah, you're, you are right. Your wife was right. This is a, this is a tough time. And I'll be honest, I wouldn't encourage any of my, my sons to go into law enforcement right now. This is a a tough time in society is going to have to figure out how they're going to deal with uh, cops or, or they're just going to have bad cops, you know, because uh, people don't want to come into this profession right now for obvious reasons. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, one thing that's interesting to me about law enforcement, you know, a lot of the people that I've spoken to are military is there's not, law enforcement comes with its own unique challenges. And, you know, the the first responders, the military, there's a lot of common thread in terms of the sort of traumatic events that you're exposed to. But with law enforcement, there isn't a clear delineation between when you're at work and off work. Right. Or, you know, you're, you're in a war zone and then you're home, mm-hmm. which has its own troubles in being, you know, coming directly from a war zone directly to home. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about 
that difference between law enforcement and military in terms of the work being right where you live and you come home from a rough day and you are at home with your family and, you know, and you have to be able to switch that off yeah. a little bit. Well, I, you know, for those soldiers who've had the opportunity to <clears throat> maybe while they're in a combat zone, go to have some R and R in a you know, village or a town nearby and always be wondering, you know, is, is, is one of the, the bad guys that I'm fighting during the day in this town right now, you know, watching me. Well, it's, so there's a, there's a difference, obviously, in intensity. You know, I'm not going out every day intentionally trying to harm people. That's not my job in, in the military. That is your job. Your job is to go out and find, find the enemy and destroy them. Um, the flip side is it, we know uh, in law enforcement that we are the hunted quite often. And we've had some cops in my area assassinated, killed. We also, you accept that on any given day, because of the environment we live in, someone can, if they want to, kill you. It's very easy to walk up, catch a cop off guard because we're doing so many things in so many different environments and to shoot and kill a cop. The The other part of it is, so I guess the, that's, you're, you're never in a safe zone. You know, even in your own home. Um, I had, my home was broken into while my two sons were sleeping upstairs and I was a detective. I got, you know, they didn't know it was a cop's home. And fortunately, by the time they got to my office and saw my uniform, they decided to, you know, get the heck out of the house. But no one is, no one is safe. And, you know, I remember having the conversations with my, my kids when they were younger, when I, when I became a cop, my youngest was what, four at the time. My older kids were still in their teens. And I said, if we're ever out in public and I say to you, go find grandma, that means get away from me because there's someone that I know is a danger to me and is approaching me. And because they knew grandma didn't live near us, you know, so go find grandma was our code word. Go find grandma, make distance from me, get away from me, call 911 because something potentially bad is about ready to happen. Now, fortunately that never happened. You know, I never had to engage like that, but it's the, it's the, pro, it's the thought that you live with that every day. And for cops, the, the tough part is to not get caught up in that hypervigilance because that can destroy you psychologically. If you, you can't spend every day of your life in a combat zone, you just can't, you know, it, it burns you out, it destroys you. So you have to find a way to tune out. And, you know, for me, <clears throat> you know, I think one of the mistakes that a lot of law enforcement makes is that all of their friends are law enforcement. You know, after work, they go have, you know, beers and drinks with their buddies that are also cops and their parties are with other cops. And, you know, I, the law enforcement out there, I would say, find something to do away from law enforcement. Find some good people to be with so that you realize the people you deal with during the day are not the average person. And it's it's easy to lose sight of that. Um, but that's just some, some practical advice <clears throat> now there. Yeah, that's good. And I, it's funny enough, I actually had a conversation with an ex-Marine that I work with in this industry recently. And we were talking about the trouble a lot of guys have disconnecting from their identity in the service or, you know, males and females. And I imagine it's, it's similar in law enforcement. And he had an interesting take similar to what you're saying, in which he said, I actively try and distance myself from it where, you know, I, if I feel the urge to do something because it makes me feel more like that guy that I used to be, sometimes I'll intentionally avoid doing that activity to put space between those identities. And 
I mean, I think it's useful to maintain the skill sets and to a degree, some of the mindset that you develop in law enforcement and military. But like you said, we have different roles in life and we, you can't carry the same one in every situation and expect to be, you know, well, well suited to that environment. No, that that's absolutely true. Yeah. You have to be able to put that down. My, my senior drill instructor in the Marine Corps, I was the guy to my platoon. So I had some <clears throat> opportunities for, I wouldn't call them a conversation. There were always one-way conversations. You know, he would, he would pass on bits of, of wisdom to me. But one day he told me, he said, when I go home, I take a shower and I wash the Marine Corps off. And yeah, that's, that's good advice for, for cops, for anybody else. When you get home, take all of that off. Uh, now in many agencies, mine is one of them. I'm required by my SOP to carry a gun with me every place I am when I'm out because I'm required by SOP or expected to engage. Even if I'm, you know, in civilian attire and something bad happens, I'm, I'm a cop, you're a cop 24 seven, but you have to distance yourself psychologically from that. And that's where, you know, I think that's where I think stoicism helps it to a tremendous degree because it helps to uh, to disconnect from the identity, no matter whether that's a soldier or a law enforcement officer. You realize that, yeah, I have a role and and this is my role as a cop. It's not the person that I am. It's not who I am as a, an individual. It just happens to be a role that I'm playing, a role that is, you know, had been assigned to me in this life. And the, the beauty of stoicism is that it teaches us how to cope in those roles. So, you, know, um, you know, the Epicureans were famous for removing themselves from the stresses of life. You know, move to the garden, find, you know, basically a commune, live with your, your friends and, and, and you know, um, people that you are like you, uh, and, and disconnect yourself from the psychological angst. Stoics did the opposite. They said, no, you know, develop the internal strength the psychological strength so that you can function as a human being in society, no matter how bad it gets. And the, uh, to the extent that the Stoics argued that, you know, uh, someone ideally a, a Stoic sage would be able to be happy while being tortured on Iraq. You know, that's, that's extreme. But the point is, is that we are, uh, Pierre Haydo used the concept of the, uh, from, from Marcus Aurelius's meditations, the inner citadel, meaning that the person that I am, stoicism allows me to build an inner citadel where um, the outside world, I can engage with the outside world, I can act in the outside world, but it can't harm the person that I am. It can shoot me, it can stab me, it can kill me, but it can't harm the person that I am because I am not this body, I am not this physical being. And it can't harm my moral character. It can't harm my my soul, psyche, the, the Greek word psyche. And uh, I just I just wish stoicism was taught in the law enforcement academy. You know, I wish it was taught in the academies, military academies, in a, in a little bit uh, more depth to give give people that strength to to deal with what they're dealing with on a daily basis. Yeah, yeah, and that. That transitions well into the next thing I was going to ask because, you know, the premise of this podcast is that obviously I think that stoicism is something that is well suited for everyone, but it is uniquely positioned to be helpful to those that deal with high trauma, high stakes environment. You know, there's a lot of people that talk about philosophy that haven't been put in situations where it is life or death, where your decisions could, you know, not only have ramifications for your own well-being, but you could end someone else's life. 
and what does that mean for you? You know, what, where, what, what is the ethical action to do in the moment? And I think that stoicism provides answers there, but I wanted to get your take on that. I mean, do you think that stoicism is u- uniquely suited for that kind of environment? It's uniquely suited for allowing someone to, yes, live live in a harsh environment and and not just survive but prosper. You know, the the other um, philosophies that are uh, like Stoicism in the sense that they were developed during the same you know cultural era, the Hellenistic times in in Greece and Rome. They are they're different. You know, the the academics were a little bit more, we call them academics today because they were a little bit more intellectual. You know, the the Epicureans, again, um, a little bit more removed from society. The Stoics were the ones who said, no, this is a a cosmopolis. This this is part of our duty as a human being to engage politically, to engage uh, in the family, to engage in society. And rather than fleeing from it, the idea behind Stoicism is to, again, become strong enough to be able to live and prosper in those environments. And to that, to that degree, you know, I, I've said before, and I'll, and I'll say it here again, I don't think Stoicism is for everybody. You know, I, I don't believe that uh, everybody will have an affinity for it. And you know, I, there's a place for Epicureanism. There's a place for the for the cynics. There's a you know a place for the academics for the academic skeptics, but Stoicism is is unique in the sense that it it prepares. You know, uh, Seneca famously said, you know, fire tests gold and and hard times uh, brave men, and you know today we would say brave men and women. But the point is is that it hardship is what proves the person, and the Stoics were famous for their willingness to accept hardship and not just not go out looking for it. You know, that wasn't the point. It wasn't, hey, you know, I got I to gotta make myself tough, tough and go look for, you know, trials and tribulations. No, but when it comes, when it, when, you know, as Seneca used, you know, Fortuna, when Fortuna shows up at your door, Lady Fortune, and brings hard times, you don't run from it. You say, okay, here it is. I'm going to deal with it, but not only am I going to deal with it, I'm going to learn from it and I'm going to become a better person as, as a, a product of having dealt with these particular circumstances, which, yeah, many people may run away from. You know, you look over at what, you look at what's going on in, in Ukraine right now and you get, you know, you've got a mix of people. Some people are going to run from it and um, some people are going to stand and do what they believe is right. Um, yeah, I don't know enough about to, about that that battle to 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 get deep into it, but the point is is that we have to make the decisions about what we're going to do in, in terms of what we're going to engage with, and Stoicism provides you with an ethical framework. It's not a book of rules. You know, some people want, um, well, tell me how to behave in this particular circumstance. Well, I can't tell you how to behave in that particular circumstance because I'm not you. And it might be different for you. It might be different for you because of your personality. It might be different for you because of the role that you play. And it's certainly going to be different for you because the circumstances surrounding that decision are going to be numerous and there's, it's not possible for you to tell me all of them. So in, if, the, if the action is based upon an, uh, an attempt to act appropriately in all respects, then it's a correct action. 
if it's not acting appropriately, if it's not acting to uh, to seek out, you know, the the four virtues, well, then it's not an appropriate act, and maybe you need to reconsider that. Yeah, and I, I think that that is, like, as you said, some people get upset with that because they want a clear cut right or wrong answer. Mm-hmm. But I know, having been asked, you know, how would a stoic approach the war in Ukraine? I that's where I think that. Stoic ethics are interesting insofar as the, your role really does matter and in your individual nature. I know something really helpful for me in terms of conceptualizing identity is Cicero recounting Panaitis for roles, you know, your role as a human being, yes. your individual nature, societal roles, and then your job. And so if someone's to ask, well, let's just take Ukraine for an example on an individual level, as an individual, should you stay and fight? It's like, well, who are you? What's your nature? What's your capacity to contribute to the situation? What's your other responsibilities? And although sometimes that can, you know, be stressful in trying to delineate where you fall in that spectrum, it provides the ability to do the the appropriate action, you know, even though it might not be a clear cut, I'm going to fight or I'm not going to fight, you can do the best that you can do in that situation provided Yes. You know, your aptitude to handle it. Yeah, because there's no clear-cut answer. Mm-hmm. And I know in terms of, you know, our conversation about leaving work at work, that's also been useful for me where I think that if you always hold your role as a human being and trying to strive for moral excellence or however you want to phrase that, then you can't do wrong as long as that's your first role. But if your first and primary role is to be you know, a tough guy, beat cop, and you carry that into every single situation, then you're liable to do things that are inappropriate where, and same in in the military. And it's been something that, you know, I've scratched my head with and talked a lot about here in terms of, is it something that would contribute to the overall well-being of the law enforcement military personnel, or would it get in the way of the edge that they need to accurately perform their duties under pressure? And I was actually talking to a psychologist and the way that she framed it and the way that she teaches it is functional disconnection and reconnection in terms of in the immediate moment, it might be time to turn the switch on and do your job, but afterwards to reconnect with the situation and not just to shut it out, not to always stay switched on. Yeah, that's exactly right. And 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 again, I can't speak to, to combat, but as a, a law enforcement officer, the trick is being able to turn that on and turn that off because situations can escalate from zero to 100 in, a, in literally a heartbeat. And you have to be prepared to deal with extreme violence in, a, in, in the beat of a heart when someone decides to become violent with you. And you know they're the one making the decision to bring violence and you have to respond in a way in an appropriate way as a, as a law enforcement officer, but you can't go around, you know, every moment prepared to be violent. You know, that's just not, um, that's not conducive to living in human society. You have to be able to turn that on and know when, and keep it off most of the time and be able to turn it on quickly. And part of that is, you know, this is probably more applicable to soldiers than, than to law enforcement, but it does also apply to law enforcement. You know, there's a tendency in human nature to otherize people. And in particular in combat, you know, if I can make them 
the other, well, then I've dehumanized them to the extent that I don't have to have any moral conscience or you know, about with, about killing them. And the same can apply to law enforcement in the sense where, you know, when I can, I can uh, look at, uh, classify them as whatever, a criminal, a thug, whatever name you want to put on them, you otherize them and you say, they're different from me, which is, and therefore, um, I don't have to consider them a human like I consider myself a human. You know, one of my favorite passages is Meditations 2.1, where Marcus talks about, tells himself, hey, every morning when you wake up, remind yourself about all these, you know, cantankerous, cantankerous and obnoxious and, and, and mean and evil people that you're going to, and disgruntled people you're going to come across. But also remind yourself that they share in a, in a portion of the divine mind just like you. So in other words, they're, they're a human being, and in many cases, we don't know the, the circumstances that made them who they are. Uh, now I'm talking about from a law enforcement perspective. You know, in, in combat, you're squaring off against a soldier who's prepared themselves to square off against you, and it's mutual combat. You know, on the street, it, it, it's a little bit different in the sense that, you know, these are not people that are out looking to engage with cops on a regular basis. They're people that I come in contact with who are in some way, you know, breaking the law. But so I rewrote Meditations 2.1 for myself as a, as a cop, just so I could remind myself that the, these people that I'm dealing with, some of them, you know, we look at it and we say, okay, this is a this is a rapist, this is a murderer, this is a child abuser. They're still a human being, as repulsive as they may be. And it's my responsibility as a cop to, in some cases, to take them out of society and place them someplace where they can be judged appropriately as to whether they are, um, whether they should be in society or not by the powers that be. But they're still a human being. And when we lose sight of that and we start treating people like they're, they're not human beings, and that even in, includes, you know, I have to believe at some level you could teach that in war. You know, your job as a, as a soldier is to survive and to win the battle. And yes, that's going to entail killing other human beings who are there to do battle with you. And that's a struggle that, you know, the, the Stoics didn't, didn't shy away from that. Marcus, most of his reign as emperor was in a battle to protect the Roman Empire. And, you know, Cato, one of the most famous Stoics, went to battle against Caesar because he he knew that the um, the fall of the Republic was a bad thing. You know, he did not want the the Republic to fall and for Caesar to take control and for there to be you know a dictatorial style of government. And he gave his life for that. So that's again not something that Stoics shy away from, but it again is something I think that the Stoic mindset allows you to be prepared to deal with so that you don't become like your enemy. You don't, you, don't, you don't become the thing that you are trying to combat, whether it's on a battlefield or on the street. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And it's, it's definitely something that I've thought about, you know, as I mentioned, the do you lose your edge with that sort of thinking. But I do think that it would reduce neg- you know, outcomes that are appalling to our modern sensibilities in which, I mean, people completely cutting themselves off from the human race in terms of war times, just being comfortable killing civilians, being comfortable, you know, just not delineating between the bad guys and who's whoever else is there. And then also, you know, it is easier, I would argue, as a law enforcement officer to say, well, like, they're at least my countrymen. Yes. So at least we have that in common. Yes. But even in a war zone, 
you know, I've had numerous conversations with combat arms guys who will be the first to admit that if I had somebody occupying my country for 15 years and I'm 16 years old, you bet your ass I'd pick up a rifle. Mm -hmm. Like, what else, do you, what else do you know? I mean, probably have a third grade education and there's been these invaders that don't look like you, you know, trouncing around, blowing things up and shooting people your whole life. I mean, it, it's easy to understand why a lot of them would fight. And even the, the ones that are more intellectual that rationalize it through, you know, religious fun extremism, you can also understand that to an extent if you take a second to think about it. That doesn't mean that your job as a professional warfighter changes at all. I mean, you still are there to defeat the enemy at, you know, however you're allowed to do so. But that doesn't mean that you have to dehumanize them and everyone like them and everyone in their country to the point where human life has no value at all. That's correct. And that's an important aspect of it is understanding where the other person is coming from. And I think there's this fear that if I, if I understand them, then I'm going to, like you're arguing, I'm going to have some kind of empathy for them and then I'm not going to be able to combat them. And I don't think that that is true. You know, I, I've argued as a, as a detective that there's a, a, every person that I arrest, I know that there's a very good reason why they committed the crime that they did. And by very good reason, I mean a very good reason in their mind. These are not irrational people. You know, uh, criminals aren't stupid. They're looking out for their own good, what they believe to be their own good. And they are doing what they think they need to do in order to survive. So I've always wanted to understand that and ask them to explain that to me. That doesn't mean it's right. And that doesn't mean that they get out of jail because they have a good reason for why they did what they did. But we we don't want to put ourselves in the place where we say, yeah, these people are just like irrational animals. They're, they're not really humans. They're just, you know, irrational animals. Um, even though in some cases, you know, even the Stokes talk about that, that a lot of people behave like irrational animals because they haven't gotten in touch with their own rational faculty and they haven't brought their, their rational faculty into alignment with nature. So there is a tendency to, to behave like irrational animals, but we have to be careful not to treat them that way. Yeah. And I think it's easy to think of where that can go wrong. I mean, it's easier to pick on the, the 20 years that we've been in war you know, Abu Ghraib or Abu Ghraib prison and, uh, you know, other situations of alleged criminal conduct by U.S. soldiers. And then there's obviously video recorded evidence of law enforcement officers acting in a way in which they clearly don't view themselves as serving their community. They view themselves as putting the law down on people. Mm -hmm. And I would argue, you know, my personal opinion is that a lot of these videos that have become popularized are blown out of proportion and, you have to have a lot of grace for people putting their life on the line and not knowing whether the person has a gun or not knowing what their intention is whenever they're resisting arrest. But there are also clear-cut evidence, clear-cut cases where the law enforcement officer completely dis disconnected himself from humankind mm -hmm. and their behavior and really otherized that person. Oh, yeah. And it's easy to see how that kind of attitude can lead to, you know, atrocities. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's no profession that's perfect. And, you know, law enforcement has some bad people that wear badges and carry guns. There's no doubt about that. Uh, fortunately, they're very few. You know, and, and unfortunately, the, uh, the, our news media takes advantage of, you know, in psychological terms, what's known as proximity effect, which is, you know, constantly putting the rare cases that occur uh, onto the news. And pretty soon people think that, well, this is the way all cops behave or a majority of cops behave, which is simply not true. 
And again, same thing with soldiers. You pick out one incident and you and you paint everybody with that same brush. You know, when you know the irony is is that you look at the opposite side and and the same people who paint cops and soldiers with that brush, they object to that brush, a broad brush being applied to other people. But it's okay to apply it to cops and soldiers and and um it, it is unfortunate. It it it's unfortunate in particular in law enforcement because there's a a uh, unintended consequence, which again is I came into law enforcement because I I thought it was a place for public service and I thought it was a place to do good for society. Well, society is now saying, no, law enforcement is not a place to do good. All cops are bad. And not I should say all of society, but the news media wants to say cops are bad, cops are evil, cops are the problem. And so again, the 16-year-old kid, why would they ever want to put on a badge and a gun? Why do I want to be a bad guy? You know, I don't want to be a bad guy. I want to be a good guy. If cops are bad guys, I don't want to be one of those. If soldiers are bad guys, I don't want to be one of those. And that has a, that has a consequence, and we're going to suffer the ramifications of that of that of that. But you know, in the meantime, the people that are there in those professions, it's just one more thing that they have to learn to deal with in in, in their daily activities, which is getting beyond the opinions of people, which again is a part of stoicism, right? Their opinion of us, people's opinion of me as a cop can't hurt me. The only thing that can hurt me is if I take that on. You know, I have to accept that I'm still out there. I'm I'm doing the right thing and they may not believe I'm doing the right thing. That's on them. And if they think that I'm, you know, evil because I wear a badge and a gun, well, again, that that's on them. That's not on me. And I can't prevent that from allowing me to do what is needed and to to do my job. Yeah, I agree. And I mean, I think it, you know, the stoic answer would be that it comes down to your intentions and, you know, coming to it from a position of trying to do the just and appropriate thing and from a position of service is the way you should view that position. Yes. And I know in my experience, I've mentioned this before on this podcast, but whenever I got out and I was struggling with my identity and wanting to be the guy with the gun, you know, coming after bad guys again, I talked to my friend's dad, who was the chief of police in a city in Arizona. And I told him, I was like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm just looking for a way to kind of still be a warrior, but you know, the military isn't an option for me. I'm not looking to do that again. And he was like, well, don't do this. He's like, you know, if you'd come in in the eighties, there was a lot more of a tough guy attitude. He said, but you need to come to law enforcement with wanting to serve your community, mm-hmm. not to be a gunfighter. Correct. Yeah. There are very few, there are very few gunfights in law enforcement. Uh, that's in fact, uh, you know, there's far more car wrecks, you know, that hurt us than there are, there are gunfights, but, um, there has, and again, there, that's where, when you come to law enforcement, there has to be an aspect of you that can turn on a warrior mentality, but you don't come to this profession. You know, now I can't speak for the past, but you don't come to this profession, you know, looking for a fight. Uh, you know, when even when I went through the academy, which is now 16 years ago, you know, they taught us it's easy to pick a fight. It's easy to get someone to resist you and and to and to pick a fight with someone. But who wins? You know, you get hurt because in in almost any fight, both people are going to get hurt. To, you know, to some degree. And not only that, but you know, why do you why do you do that? What's the what's the point of it? You're supposed to be a peacekeeper. You're supposed to be a peacemaker. You're not supposed to be out there antagonizing people. 
and and some do. You know, some cops do. There's no doubt about it. That is a uh, a piece of culture that is changing. I think it has changed and is changing even far more rapidly. Part of that, I think, the bene- the the profession of law enforcement is benefiting to a large degree uh, from having a large influx of women come into it, and you know that that changes uh, changes behavior to a to some degree. Uh, so it's yeah, but, but again, that's the tough part. Is the tough part is yeah, you've got to you have to come here not wanting to be a warrior, but prepared to be one at a moment's notice if the uh, if the gunfire starts. I mean, you look at what happened here just, what was it, not a couple of years ago with our shooting down south in southern Florida where the deputy that was on scene uh, didn't want to go in and, and engage. Mm. And, and he ended up losing his job over that. You have to have people carrying a badge and a gun who, when bad things happen, which they will, they do on a daily basis if you pick up the news, are willing to risk their lives, to put their life on the line and step in and bring whatever level of violence is necessary to make that violence stop. And that does require a warrior mentality. That's why, you know, the cops are trained to go toward the gunfire and not run away from it. But you can't carry that uh, warrior mentality all the time. You can't carry it when you're on a traffic stop and you've pulled somebody over because they're speeding. You can't carry it, you know, when you go into a, uh, uh, a noise complaint, you can't carry it when you're, you've got, you know, a dog barking and the neighbors want the dog to, to shut up. There's so many things that we do as law enforcement that, uh, do not require that warrior mentality. They require a level of awareness because again, you could show up for the dog complaint and realize it's a, it's an ambush and somebody is there trying to bring you harm. And, and once again, you have to turn on that warrior piece, but. Well, I think. Yeah, it's the recognition of realizing you're not a 24-7 warrior. And I think that that's the beauty of stoicism in these kind of high-stakes jobs, that if you see yourself first and foremost as an individual pursuing excellence of character in the various roles and different hats that you wear, then it doesn't put you in a situation where you feel like, I have to engage this in a certain way. You can approach a traffic stop with, what's the best way to, what's the most appropriate way to approach this situation? And then whenever bullets start flying, what's appropriate for you to do is run towards that and move into that. So focusing on excellence of character in everything that you do, I do think is a broad brush answer that solves a lot of problems. Because again, like just wrapping your identity up and wanting to be a gunfighter, as we, we've said over and over again, just ends up in a really bad situation, particularly in law enforcement. Correct. Yeah, because you only want that gunfighter very rarely. You don't want that gunfighter all the time. And wives don't want that gunfighter at home. That gunfighter is not doing their kids any good. Um, uh, husbands don't want the gunfighter at home when it's a female cop. You know, it, it, it's, there's, most of our life is not as a gunfighter or, you know, a warrior. Most of our life is interacting with other human beings on a human level. And being able to keep the rest of that, you know, the break glass in case of, you know, uh, whatever might occur, but you have to be able to, to create that mindset. And I do agree. I do think stoicism helps to do that because it focuses you on the constant. You know, one of, one of the doctrines of stoicism is a thing called prosoche, which is attention and translates into attention. And, uh, the idea of prosoche is that I'm constantly paying attention to my thoughts and I'm constantly paying attention to the assent that I give to things. So 
when I'm on a traffic stop and someone starts to berate me as a cop because, you know, they watched the news last night and they saw that, you know, cops are bad and cops are whatever. It's my choice to give assent to the idea that they are harming me in some way. If I don't give assent to that, if I don't say, yeah, I agree, I agree that you're, you're harming me with your mean words. If I don't agree with that, then it's not doing me any harm. So in effect, everything, the, the, the realization is they're not harming me. I'm harming me. I'm harming me by essentially agreeing with them. You know, you call me, you know, I, I, I joke, I tell people all the time, I was born and raised, lived most of my life on the West Coast. When I came to Florida and became a cop, the first time I was out on the street and somebody called me a cracker, I didn't know, I'd never heard that word. And, I, you know, we're, we're over, I'm done with this engagement and I had to turn to one of my partners and say, what's a cracker, you know? And so I, so in that case, I wasn't offended by it because I didn't even know what it meant for them to call me a cracker. Well, you know, if you're going to get upset as a cop by being called names, it's probably the wrong profession. You know, if you're going to get upset because they tell you you're abusive, you know, it's the wrong profession because they're going to consider it abusive when they've just beat the crap out of their wife and you're putting them in handcuffs and taking them to jail. They're going to consider you're the bad guy. Well, no, you're, you're the person wrong here. You've harmed another human being and you get to go to jail. But in their mind, you're the bad guy as the cop. But we give assent to those things. We are the ones that choose whether to be offended by their words. We're the ones that choose to be psychologically harmed by the perception that people have of us. And again, that's where stoicism comes to play and we can um, deal with that. But not everybody can. And that's why I said it's law enforcement's not the profession for everybody these days because you have to be a truly tough-minded person to come into this profession nowadays and deal with what you're going to be facing in order to, and, and not uh, become dehumanized yourself and not dehumanize other people. Yeah, and I think that the discipline of assent in that regard in terms of putting space between taking a pause when you get input, you know, whenever an impression comes up in your mind of this is bad or this is good, putting a little break there and looking at it logically. And as Marcus Aurelius says, you know, really break it down to its component pieces. And as you said, I mean, they called you a cracker and you weren't offended because you didn't know. All right. Well, if you had known and you were offended, as you said, it's because you chose to. Right. And the, the benefit of that constant practice is that whenever you're dealing in such a blurry, gray, violent world that law enforcement's in, it gives you a lot more headspace to make the appropriate decision and not get overruled by your emotions. Because people in you know any sort of tough guy world, law enforcement, military, or even construction, uh, oftentimes view, oh, I should become irate. You know, they, they think I'm not emotional. I'm a tough guy and I get angry and I yell, mm -hmm. but you are getting emotional and you're giving away your ability to think clearly. And if you live in a life or death world, then that's a very important state of mind that you need to be able to maintain to make the appropriate decision. Yeah. Yeah. The, mo the, the most important word I think a stoic can remember is stop. You know, and by that, I mean, we tend to, we, we, we know when things are starting to get out of control and the emotions are starting to rise. You know, my next uh, lesson that I'm going to be doing on Stoicism on Fire podcast is on Enchiridion 20. And that's exactly the point of it, is that when you, 
when you're about to react to something, you need to say, stop. And that's creating the distance that you're talking about. You know, one of my previous podcast episodes, I talked about, you know, the three steps. Uh, whenever you're confronted with something, you know, you say, stop it, you strip that impression bare, and then you view it from a, from a cosmic perspective. But if you really want to get, and if you really want to get deep into stoicism, deep into the theory, you know, we respond to everything that occurs in life based upon the person that we are right now. You know, Chrysip has talked about the concept of a cylinder, that you are, um, you know, metaphorically a cylinder. In other words, you are the person that you are today. And when some kind of an external uh, impetus, which it would be an impression, is pressed upon you, when some external force is pressed upon you, you're going to respond to it based upon the person that you are. You don't get to respond, if you're an angry person, you don't get to suddenly stop and say, okay, today I'm going to make the choice to act kind. You only get to do that, well, I shouldn't say, you do get to do that if you say stop. But your inclination will be, if you're an angry person and someone provokes you, you're going to respond with anger. The only way you stop that cycle and change the character is by stopping in the moment. Well, there's two ways. You stop in the moment and say, okay, I'm going to stop right now because I normally would be angry and I need to take a couple of breaths and I need to look at this. And now in real time, I'm modifying my character and I'm, I'm deciding in this particular instance, I'm not going to respond with anger. And that's one victory. And I just influenced my own personal character in some way, one small way. And if I do that again tomorrow, and then the next day, you know, Epictetus talks about if you do it five times, you know, great. And when you've done it for, you know, for 30 times, you know, uh, you know I think he says, you know, go, go uh, you know, burn an offering to the gods or something. In other words, you've developed the habit now. You changed your character. It's not, there's, you, you have to be able to create that distance in order to be able to change your character. The only other time you can do it is after you've blown up and you've been angry again, and now you step aside and in your own quiet time, you realize, okay, I really screwed up today. What would I do different? So right now I'm, I'm remolding that cylinder. So that the next time the cylinder, you know, is pushed, it rolls smoothly rather than clunk, 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 you know, whatever, get, get the rough edges off of it. We are responsible for our moral character. We're responsible for our moral character 110% once you become an adult. A child isn't until they reach the age of reason. But once you become an adult, no matter what has happened to you, no matter what developed that character, because you might have gone through some really bad crap, you know? I mean, you look at these kids, you were talking about the 16-year-olds over you know, in, in Afghanistan or in other countries that, that have lived in a war zone their entire life. That affects their, 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 their nature. It affects who they are, but they still at some point become responsible for their character. And once you are responsible, everything you do, every action that you have, there's no excuse for it because it's yours. You own it. You responded to that event based upon the person that you were at that time. And the only way to respond differently is to train yourself not to respond that way. And that when you're in the, in the uh, ramp up to that event, to be able to say, stop. Stop what's going on right now. Stop getting angry. Distance yourself from it. Create the space so that you can reshape your character in that moment for that particular circumstance and, and develop the habit of, of continuing to redo it. Yeah, totally. And I mean, that was put very well. It's easy to see how stoic stoicism recently has become so commercialized because, I mean, that is also just good psychology. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the, the stoics were obviously onto something. And that's why... CBT, REBT, 
um, and all those branch of therapy has come out of a study of stoicism. Yes. Which, you know, not a lot of people understand. And that's something, you know, I run a stoic group here in Nashville that a lot of people don't understand whenever they first show up, they think it's going to be something really esoteric, but stoicism is extremely applicable. And, you know, I would argue that it's, it's good if you can find self-help, if you can find a nugget of wisdom out of something and apply it to your life. But the way to get the most value out of, you know, this system of thought would be to spend time actually understanding the philosophy, understanding the theory, you know, maybe start with picking up some of the habits and trying to implement some of the practical measures into your life. But, you know, immediately bulwark that with a little bit of study so that you understand, you know, it, it creates this positive feedback loop in my experience of creating stronger practice, building your character more and more, as opposed to just taking one little tool and walking away with it. And in that same vein of thought, you know, we've talked a lot specifically about law enforcement and military here, but you're really well known within the community for your work with traditional stoicism, uh, with the College of Stoic Philosophers. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. I know you mentioned that you you went to you took their course, and now you're the scholar of the school. What is that for the listeners? What is the school? Yes, sir. Yeah, the school is an online college. It, the what we call the Stoic Essential Studies program is intended to be a four month long program. You're assigned a, a mentor, and you you work through the basic. Uh, doctrines of Stoicism, starting with you know a little bit of history, and then we we cover the the three topics: the logic, the physics, and the ethics of Stoicism. And then uh, the, the the final piece of that um, is, is putting it, some of that into practice in your life. How do I apply these things that I've learned? Because it doesn't do you any good if you're not applying them. And then the Marcus Aurelius program is more of a real deep dive. That's a year long program. You know, very intensive, very deep into the theory, and again, it's not for everybody. You you can develop a basic practice of stoicism after the four month program and understand why you're doing what you're doing. You know, um, for some people, like I said, the the CBT uh, version of stoicism is enough and it's effective. Just the idea. It's life changing just to accept and to realize that every one of your emotions comes from you. Because we, a lot of people want to blame their emotions. You made me angry. No, I, I didn't make you angry. You made yourself angry. The word that I used, the word that I said, didn't make you angry. Your thought about that word made you angry. And that's where, you know, the Stoics were way ahead of their time when they realized that all of those emotions we have are preceded by our thoughts, our judgments, and our assent to those things. So, uh, after the four-month program, you've got more than enough to, to practice. And if you want to go on and complete the, the year-long program, then you'll have a, you know, a, a thorough, deep uh, understanding of, of Stoic theory. And, um, and then if you, if you choose at the end of that program, you say, hey, I'd really like to, you know, uh, to teach here. I'd like to be a mentor. Then we, we look and we have you know, conversations about that and we can put you into an internship program. You know, a lot of people that go through the year-long program end up being on our our faculty, everyone that is on our faculty at the college, is homegrown. Uh, we don't we don't bring people in to teach unless they've been through the program. Uh, the um, and it's it's a great education. 
Okay, and you also have a podcast that has been, you know, really beneficial for me in understanding certain core concepts. How did that develop? How did moving into starting a podcast on stoicism develop for you? Well, I started with a blog, the traditional stoicism blog in 2015. And then in 2018, I had some people asking me, you know, if about uh, starting a podcast. I didn't know anything about podcasting, didn't really have any interest in it, didn't listen to podcasts really myself. But I looked into it and I thought, okay, well, you know, maybe, maybe this is a way to reach some, some more people with stoicism. And so I started the Stoicism on Fire podcast. <clears throat> and it quickly became, you know, far more popular than the blog. More people listen to the podcast than read the blog. And uh, I think that's natural. It's, it's something that people can listen to on their way to work in the car, as opposed to having to go online and, and read uh, blog material. So, um, yeah, there's 60 episodes out there now. And in the early stages, uh, I, I went through a course or a series of courses that I called The Path of the Procopton. The idea was uh, everything I know about Stoicism, I, I accumulated through studying the, 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 the credible scholars of, of Stoicism. I don't read Greek. I don't read Latin. I don't have you know ten or twenty years of experience studying those cultures, so I depend upon the scholars to tell me what Stoicism is, and that material sometimes is is pretty dry, pretty you know pretty, and the books are uh, in many cases extremely expensive. I've got books on my bookshelf that cost several hundred dollars each. And, you know, academics really prize their books, and, and well, I'm not sure if this the academics do, but the, the publishers certainly prize some of those books. So my goal with the podcast is to distill that stuff down, partly because I need to do it for myself. You know, when I pick up these scholarly books, I have to, I struggle to, okay, what in the heck are they saying? What do they mean? And once I figure out what they mean, well, if I've articulated it for myself, then I can articulate it for others and so that they don't have to, to go into the scholarly texts themselves. Now, I, I always provide references, which is why if you go onto my blog, you'll see all of my blogs are very heavily footnoted. So if you want to go and look this stuff up yourself, you can. You know, um, my What I understand of Stoicism is not Chris Fisher's version of Stoicism because I'm not smart enough to make this stuff up. You know, What I understand about Stoicism comes from people like A.A. A. Long and Brad Edwood and, and David Sedley and Christopher Gill, you know, the, the guys that really have spent their lives studying this and, and are able to articulate it to at a, at a scholarly level. And that's why I provide the references. I want people to, yeah, don't, don't believe me. You know, here's the text. Here's the scholarly text. Here's what is written in the, in the actual Stoic text. Go look at it yourself. Because I think that's one of the mistakes that a lot of moderns make is they, they want it to be so easy. You pick up a book um, on Stoicism and, oh, wow, this is a really, really good book. And they really enjoy it but they never bother to get into the texts themselves or they don't even question the author. You know, is this, is this really consistent with what the Stoics taught or is this kind of a reformulated version of Stoicism um, for modern times, which is fine, but they don't even understand that there is a distinction. So I, I challenge people to, to as much as they can get into the texts themselves and get into some of the scholarship themselves and, and verify what it is that I write about and what I, what I say on the podcast. Yeah, as somebody who has re picked up 
I think it's History of Hellenistic Philosophy by A.A. Long. Mm-hmm. I can attest that it can be pretty dense. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, I've definitely had to— It's a great book. I've, I've taken a break from that one. I'm on uh, the Inner Citadel right now, but it reads a little bit easier. But, it, I mean, I agree it, with you. Yeah. It, it's worthwhile to, to dig in, and it is worthwhile to really consult the experts as far as what the original texts say. It's, it, it's kind of interesting, too. I listened to an interview with one of the more recent— translators of Marcus Aurelius, and I heard him kind of bashing some other tech versions of it, and it just reminded me of growing up in the Christian church and hearing people bash on different versions of the Bible. And so, I mean, there is always that kind of interesting exegesis of old text, and translators inevitably are going to put a little bit of their—or they're going to put their understanding of the text into their translation. Yes. So it's worthwhile to, to read these people who spend their life studying it and even read, if you're reading just a translation, a straight translation, to maybe read several translations to get a good idea of what they were getting at. Absolutely. Yeah. Cross-referencing translations is important because they use, in some cases, they'll translate a word differently. And you bring up exegesis. And, you know, exegesis is one thing. Uh, the word uh, exegesis means, you know, interpreting the text. The bigger problem we have today with Stoicism is what's called eisegesis, which you also see a lot in uh, uh, you know, Christianity, which is, um, I come to this book, this ancient text, with my own ideas, with my own beliefs, and magically I see them in this text. You know, and I, I'm able to impute my ideas into this text and pick out the pieces, cherry pick the pieces that support my ideas. You know, that's eisegesis. That's not letting the book talk to you. You're talking to the book, and. You know, so we, if you go on, if you go on social media with Stoicism, it, it is amazing some of the things that people believe about Stoicism because they've practiced this, you know, eisegesis. They've picked up a, a Stoic text while it's translated into their current language. It was, you know, written over 2,000 years ago, um, and and they think that somehow they're going to be able to understand it in um, without any reference to scholarship or without any reference to the culture that it came from. And they just interpret it in their their own words, and you know. So, so I even you know words like providence and God and logos. People come to Stoicism with ideas of what those words mean, typically from religion. And they go, oh, I don't want any of that. Well, do you have any idea what the Stoics meant when they used that word? Uh, you know, and, and I, I was guilty of it too. You know, the first time I read med- Meditations, the first time in the 1990s, or attempted to put it back on the shelf because of all the God talk in it, you know, and I, I had had a bad experience with religion and I wanted nothing to do with it. But then when I continued to, to move forward through Marcus Aurelius school, I realized, okay, this is not the God of the Bible that they're talking about here. This is something entirely different. This concept of providence isn't the way it's taught in Sunday school. You know, and, and, but people, again, come with their own preconceptions about what those words mean and put it into the text rather than Rather than allowing the the text to speak for itself, and it's uh, it's a fascinating philosophy. There's a lot to learn. I've been doing it for eleven years, and I, t- I genuinely feel like I've just scratched the surface on so many levels. They're just it, it's amazing philosophy. Well, yeah, I know that, and I was definitely gu- guilty of that. Was it isogesis? Isogesis, yeah, yeah. I was definitely guilty of that, and I was actually listening to you that I started to notice the amount of references to God in which I wasn't consciously trying to tune it out, but I was just taking 
you know, looking at it and just kind of rolling over that because I didn't subscribe to any sort of monotheistic idea, mm-hmm. conception of God. Mm-hmm. And then obviously, like you said, the more time you spend trying to understand what they meant by those words or how they meant them, it is a very rich and nuanced tradition in that regard. And you are, I think that you're doing a disservice if you just brush it off offhandedly and you don't at least consider them deeply what they meant by those things is they certainly reference them constantly. Yes. And, and we live in a time when we live in a secular age uh, as you know, the uh, Mr. Taylor's book uh, brilliantly calls it where we are quick to you know, denounce, deny anything that comes across to us as, you know, religious or spiritual. Ironically, at the same time, you know, humanity has come to what I believe is probably a, close to a breaking point in the sense that we've abandoned all of our traditions. We've abandoned all of our, um, the reasons why we behave, uh, behaved the way we used to behave, which was, uh, in a civil society. And, we threw the baby out with the bathwater. And, you know, my argument is maybe it's time to go back and and look at this again. Yeah, not because we're searching for a monotheistic religion, because, yes, yeah, Stoicism is not that. And I think the, the amazing thing to me is I believe that the reason why the meditations resonates with so many people in modern times, that book in particular, is because they see they see within the text, even though they may be ignoring the word God, they may be ignoring the word providence in there, they see this this deep sense of meaning that Marcus has for his life, that, that my life has meaning, that the events in my life have meaning, and that some in some strange way, everything is connected to everything else, and that everything works as a system, and they don't can't really articulate why they feel this resonance with it, but they just know that they do. There's something in this book. And then you say, oh, but I got to get rid of all this God and providence and logo stuff. Well, ironically, you're getting rid of the things that you you subconsciously are resonating with, which is a, a deeper sense of life that we've abandoned because we've abandoned, you know, religion, you know, maybe for good reasons, but uh, that's that's not what Stoicism is. Stoicism was never a, a religion in the modern sense of the word. You know, it was a personal belief system, and yeah, it did they did assent to the concept of God, but it wasn't a God sitting up in heaven making rules. It was you know the entire the entire cosmos is a, a divine organism, and that's their their concept of of God, and everything is interrelated, and each one of us carries within our own soul, in our own psyche, a fragment of that divine. And that's what connects us all together and allows us to, not just allows us to live in uh, accord with one another and with nature, but inspires us according to the Stoics. I mean, that is the, it's called the doctrine of, of oikiosis, that we are, we are born with this sense of, uh, of doing right, and that's been borne out by Mon- by uh, Paul Bloom from Harvard in a brilliant book called Just Babies. But baby, little babies have a, a, an innate concept of what's right and wrong and just and unjust. And that as we, the Stoics said, as you grow, as you mature, that expands to not just a, a oikiosis, not just an affinity to survive myself and to do what's good for me, but to do now have an affinity for my family, to have an affinity for my society, and then ultimately to have an affinity for all of humanity and realize that we are all, we're all in this mess together, you know, and, and we need to learn how to, to respect one another. And when you look into another person's eyes, 
uh, whether you're arresting them or whether you've met them on a combat field and you say you can say well yeah this person has a, a fragment of the divine in them it's a different approach now a soldier may still have to kill that person the cop may still have to to shoot and kill that person or arrest that person but you're doing it from a from a, a different sense of respect for who they are in the way that you know you it, the American Indians, when they took the life of an animal, they thanked the animal. You know, they understood that things were connected. We, we've lost sight of that in the Western world, that everything is dependent upon one another, and we're all dependent upon each other. And yeah, we're going to continue to fight, and we're going to continue to war because we're not perfect. We're not sages. Um, and somehow the Stoics believe that all of that in the end has a purpose and you know, creates the, the end that the cosmos has in mind, which may not be exactly what we have in mind, but again, bringing ourselves into agreement with that is what brings us as individuals the the well-being that we're looking for as human beings. Yep, I absolutely agree with you. And uh, I think that that's a, a good place to wrap up the conversation. I'd like to put some links for some of the things that you work on for the school, um, you know, the Facebook page or the podcast in the description of the episode. But could you just describe where people might find those things if they are listening to this and are interested. Yeah. College of Stoic org is the college. You'll find my uh, blog on traditional stoicism.com and the podcast is also there. Every episode is, is put out on the, um, the blog as an episode. And if you're looking for a Facebook group that is dedicated to the traditional concept of stoicism, then the traditional stoicism Facebook group is, is also there. Okay. Well, thanks again. This has been a really fun conversation for me. Likewise. So I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yes, sir. Bye.